Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Eastern family. Thanks for tuning us in. From 1927 until Eastern's last flight in 1991, the men and women have lived the history of our great airline. We are presenting these memories and stories with our radio show, Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. We can't even imagine how, in the early days, the pilots flew open cockpit mail planes in all types of weather with very little or no navigational equipment except light beacons, landmarks, and other visual cues to reach their destinations. Many of the early pioneers even lost their lives to get the mail through. Some were even heroes to people along the mail route from New York to Miami by spotting fires of homes and businesses, then turning their mail planes to the affected property, circling and alerting those on the ground about the impending danger. This was a type of concern Eastern people displayed over the years. 
we read a story of June a couple of episodes ago, and the same concern led June Hatton to pay for an airline ticket for a soldier returning home to be with his family. He could not afford the cost, so she paid for the flight. It's typical of the Eastern employee. I remember receiving medical help when I first was hired by Eastern and still on probation at six months with the company. Eastern paid all of my wife's hospital bills when she had a stroke and gave me the time off that I needed. This was the company we worked for, ladies and gentlemen. I'm more convinced than ever, looking back at those wonderful years we had with Eastern, that the legend will live on long after we are gone. With the memories we share every Monday evening and stories yet to be written, Eastern will not be forgotten, even by our descendants. If you have a story to tell, we want to hear from you. So stick around to the end of this broadcast, and we'll tell you how to go about getting it on the air. Now, Linda and Harry, let's tell the story of Eastern as told by its people. Eastern buys Carabair. Let's hear how Eastern expanded in the Caribbean. This is a story from The Wings of Man by George Lyle. Carabair was a small airline that had been founded as Caribbean Atlantic Airlines in 1939 by two Spanish brothers. While Benigno Trigo, the older brother, had been at the airline's founding, he had quickly and quietly abdicated in favor of his younger but more dominant sibling, Dionisio. During the 1950s, the airline covered the immediate islands adjacent to Puerto Rico with four Douglas DC-3s and by all counts did a very good job of it. In the 1960s, the airline expanded further south to Trinidad and westward to the Dominican Republic and Haiti. Six Convair 340s were bought from Braniff Airways. Carabelle was doing so well that Time magazine featured its success in an article under the headline, Jackpot in the Sky. With all this recognition came a plethora of suitors for the airline. But Dionisio was not having any of it. Instead, he dedicated all of his efforts to expanding and modernizing Carabair. One of the first big issues he confronted was the selection of a turbine engine to upgrade the piston engine Convair liners. The choice was between Allison, part of General Motors, and Rolls-Royce. I'm sure both the presentations made to Denisio by both Allison and Rolls were both technically perfect. But as I later was to become aware of Denisio's personal quirks and propensities, I am sure what won the day for the British were the niceties that they placed at his disposal. Rolls did not send a salesman to Puerto Rico to make a pitch, but instead invited Mr. and Mrs. Trigo to be their guests in London. First-class tickets on British Overseas Airways Corporation, a limousine at their disposal, and the Royal Suite at Claridge's, plus a presentation intended by the chairman of Rolls-Royce an event usually reserved for sales pitches to the mega air carriers of the day went a long way to quickly resolve the transaction. The introduction of the Rolls-Royce dart-powered Conware 640 was so successful that Dionisio was soon on a new acquisition binge, placing an order for 3 DC-9 Series 31. He used the Fiesta jets to further lengthen his route structure, starting non-stop service from San Juan to Curacao and Aruba Jamaica, and Miami. 
Now Carabao was starting to compete with the likes of Pan Am and British West Indian Airways, which did not take too kindly to anyone invading their home turf, especially a small newcomer such as Carabao. It did not take long for the battles to be joined, with the worst of luck occurring to Carabao's right when they could least afford it. While they were operating a lot of daily legs, most of them were of short duration, rarely exceeding one hour. This made for a lot of takeoffs and landings, creating a tremendously stressful situation and a horrific amount of carbon buildup in the dart engines of the Convair liners. The result was that they started to fail with such frequency that it was practically impossible to maintain any semblance of schedule. At the same time, increased competition was taking its toll on the load factor of the DC-9s. The fact was that while Carabair had been an attractive investment possibility for mainland carriers heretofore, with the deterioration of its schedules and equipment, its pill had all but disappeared. Where it had been a profitable operation, it was now bleeding red from every route segment that it operated. It was this Carabair that approached Eastern seeking a possible way out of its problem through a sales agreement. And it was this scenario that occasioned my being asked to join an Eastern acquisition team to study the possibility. The team was composed of Allison Wade, a lawyer from Eastern's Washington Law Firm and an expert in acquisition, Steve Smitsko, Eastern's treasurer and financial wizard, and myself. We arrived in San Juan late in September 1969 with instructions to assess to assess the assets and liabilities of Carabair. Outside of serving as a counselor to the other two in matters relating to their pricing of actual assets, my primary job was to establish the possibilities of future schedules that could produce value to the combined operations. However, by the time we arrived in San Juan, Carabair had already defaulted on its loans to Banco Popular of Puerto Rico, and it was also often happens in the tightly knit communities of Latin American countries, both Dionisio and the chairman of the bank, Rafael Carrion, who had been lifelong friends, had taken personally and were now at each other's throats. Joint negotiating was completely out of the question. Toward the middle of December, we were finally able to bring the parties sufficiently close together so as to allow us to make an offer and be confident that it would be acceptable law. The one fact that all three of us had continuously emphasized to our principals in New York was that for Eastern to be successful in its bid for Care Bear, there had to be methodology defined in order to keep Care Bear from collapsing from lack of operating funds while awaiting final approval for the purchase from the Civil Aeronautics Board. On December the 15th, 1969, Eastern finally announced that agreement for the purchase of Care Bear had been reached and that it was filing immediately for approval of the transfer of the routes. The announcement noted that due to the deteriorating financial condition of Care Bear, that it be allowed to name a management team that would act independently of Eastern management, reporting directly to the Eastern Board of Directors. In what seemed to me at the time to be an afterthought, it designated me as the head of the team, reporting directly to the board. When we discussed the real meaning of my assignment, it was agreed that while I would be technically off the Eastern payroll for the purposes of benefits and other rights, I would continue as a corporate vice president. Once again, my life had taken a hard and accelerated turn from what would could have considered the normal career path. I was informed that I was, have to, I was to have the pick of the best of Eastern in selecting the people who were going to make up the management team or Care Bear. 
Also, I was told that the duration of the assignment would be approximately nine months for all members and that CareBear would be providing living quarters for all. The families of all team members would remain stateside whenever the last assignment had been. Visits to the states would be arranged for members only when their individual duties would allow. After much consulting and interviewing for what was judged to be a tremendous career advancement opportunity by most of the people within Eastern, I announced the selection shortly before the new year. As head of maintenance, I selected a proven leader who was not only an effective te technician, but had a long history of successes, first in actual online work at several eastern stations, and then as director of heavy maintenance at the main base in Miami. In his mid-fifties, Paul Hartline was, was a soft-spoken giant of a man, six foot three and weighing some 230 pounds. I selected a CPA who was a member of the Eastern Internal Audit Team as head of finance. As a traveling auditor, he had been exposed to a myriad of accounting, financial, and reporting matters so as to allow him to land running in San Juan. Additionally, he had been the controller of a small firm before joining Eastern. Art Lasky was tailor-made for the position at Care Bear. The marketing and sales position was really going to require an individual who was not shy in approaching old problems with new solutions, and who was not going to be afraid of selling disenchanted employees on making the thing work. I had met Phil Seifert when I had worked for Pan Am, and knew his son, John, as a bright, up-and-coming young sales manager at Eastern. His reputation among his peers was enviable, and if anything, the comment by some of his fellow managers was that it was really hard to hold him back just what I needed at Care Bear. Our human resources team member had a particularly intricate problem to solve at Care Bear. He was going to have to continue to work under the existing Care Bear rules, but at the same time prepare the entire workforce for its eventual absorption by Eastern. Not a very easy task. For this job, I found the perfect man in Dick Briggs. Dick's main expertise in human relations, Miami, was contract negotiations. He had been an Olympic sailor, and his ability to talk to people was very evident from my first meeting. His selection completed the Care Bear management team, and so started our supposed nine-month assignment. Our individual roles were very clearly defined. Paul Hartland had to come up with a quick fix to the conveyor engine problem and was, that was destroying our ability to meet schedule performance. Dick Briggs was assigned the task of creating a motivational story that would lift the spirits of a demoralized workforce. John Seifert had to fill a believable and doable marketing program that would focus everyone's attention on putting people on airplane seats. Lasky had to develop our business plan into small, actionable steps that were easy to understand and relatively easy to execute. We had to place Cara Bear on a break-even basis, and that was Lasky's job to keep everyone on track with a very visible and current scorecard. Finally, my job was to see that it all happened. The only other parameter that we placed on the recovery plan was that we were not going to attack the problems as if they were going to be solutions for a holding action, but rather permanent solutions for a company that had every, every intention of being a going concern when Eastern would take it over. Within a month, Paul seemingly found the solution to the problem of carbon buildup in the Rolls-Royce Dart engines. He used a mixture of oil and crushed walnut shells that he injected into the cylinders to flush out the carbon. Maintenance of the delays ceased being a chronic problem, particularly immediately. Dick Briggs organized small meetings of employees so that the entire management team could explain the nature of the problems identified, 
how they contributed to the deterioration of performance, and what were the necessary actions from all to remedy the situation. Another of Dick's large contributions was securing the surplus stock of uniforms resulting from Eastern's general uniform change early in 1970. An indirect result of change in the public appearance of all Carabair employees was that our passengers assumed that if we were putting our people in new uniforms, that meant that Carabair was in it for the long run. John Seifert began a series of actions that are nowadays pretty common, but then were anything but. Carabair started to sell tickets on board after the flight left the gate, so that passengers did not have to bother with checking at the counter. Together with the caterer, he designed a cup that could be filled on the ground with pina colada, then hold its freeze for an hour so the drink could be served on 30-minute hops. We priced them at $3 a piece, and it became a bestseller for the airline. Slowly but surely, Carabair started to write itself. We ceased to be the laughing stock of the industry in the Caribbean, and people actually started to applaud our efforts and started to fly the airline again. I had the special chore of having to go to New York once a month to present the operating results to the board of directors, usually closing my presentation with an estimate how much money would be required to keep Carabair afloat to the next month. The reaction when I announced to the board for the first time, after nine months of operations, that Carabair was not going to need any additional funds for the coming month as it had begun to break even was unforgettable. As far as I know, this was the first time that the Eastern Board had given a standing ovation to a lying vice president. In June 1972, the Civil Aeronautics Board finally gave approval to Eastern Airlines to acquire Carabair. What had been thought of as a nine-month assignment had turned into three years of hard work that produced market changes in all of our lives and a very profitable addition to Eastern's route structure. Eastern Airlines presents A Flight of Imagination to Walt Disney World Epcot Center. On an Eastern Super 7 vacation, a week here without airfare is as little as $156, including hotel, car, and more. How can we do this? Why, as the official airline of Walt Disney World, we can work a little magic of our own. Here's a couple of observations that were sent in to the repartee mailbag. This first one was from Bob Shipner. One important lesson I learned while flying the Mac with Captain Sonny Seaman was how to go halfway around the world and back with two days in Hawaii each way and only spend $1.68 on the entire trip. He was my hero until I flew with Captain Buffkin Fairchild, who made the same trip on $0.94. Cents. Far be it for me to say that these two fine gentlemen are closed with a buck, but whenever they would open their change purses in the cockpit, we would be killing moss halfway across the Pacific. I also had the distinction of flying with Captain Vern Peterson on his last trip while on the Mac. I'll never forget the little spit-and-polished Marine Corporal who was guarding the gate to Pearl Harbor when we pulled up to the gate in our rented car. We were getting a bit of a rough time from him until Vern whipped out his ID card, which identified him as Marine General Vernon A. Peterson. I thought the little Marine would knock himself out with the karate chop salute he gave to General Vern. Vern's only comment to me was, gee, I hate to do that, but I guess sometimes you have to. And then we have this one from Jim Mahan. My last trip was one of the highlights of my career. 
had four generations of Mahans on the airplane and layover in Charlotte. My mother, who took her first airplane ride with me as my first passenger in 1940, my older daughter, who worked the trip as a flight attendant, my son and younger daughter, and number one grandson. Of course, Anne, who put up with the idiosyncrasies of an airline pilot's wife for almost 33 years. Our room party that night also included some old friends who had come to Charlotte from Savannah to join the celebration. Eastern is the shuttle airline. It's second nature to me to take the Eastern shuttle. Wouldn't think about using anybody else. I know there's lots of competition, but they're the people I just go to. And I'm happy with it. And I don't think I'd, I'd go to uh, any of the other uh, airlines. I think the Eastern Shuttle has always been very efficient, but it's become even more so with the improvements. Improvements like snacks and beverages, roomier seating, and more comfortable terminals. The Eastern Air Shuttle Plus. You've gone from a, a cab ride to closer to a limousine ride. Fly Eastern, number one to the sun. By Elizabeth Alexander Trainer. Fly Eastern, number one to the sun. That was the theme song I sang all the way to my exciting new position with Eastern Airlines as a flight attendant in 1965. From the mountains of New Hampshire came a young lady who couldn't wait to see more of the world while working very hard. My parents had returned from a trip to California some years earlier and thought this would be the very best job for me, and they were right. There are many memories, most clouded by time, but I'll recall a few as I contemplate as I contemplate the best years of my working life. During those early days of my career, the camaraderie of my co-workers and indeed that of all the company personnel I worked with impressed me. Winnie Gilbert's training school was one of the best places was a place of new friends and tests. The Miami Springs Villa were lovely sporting palm trees and flowers I had never seen before, located in a land that was warm even in the fall months. Upon graduation, I was sent to New York to find a place to live and shuffle between three airports. Of course, it was exciting, new and a little bit scary to be on my own with a new roommate and a job while relatives were many miles away. The world was calling me. I loved the, the variety my flights provided. It was really a kaleidoscope of new people and destinations with every day filled with new adventures. I bid for charters if they were going to any place I had never visited before, so that left many possibilities. At that time, we could bring back lilies and British chocolates from Bermuda, as well as pineapple and rum from San Juan, so I treated my family to these goodies as I told them of my flights, and I met many famous and interesting passengers. There were movie stars and comedians, a race car driver, and authors, the Reverend Billy Graham, the Letterman, who were popular singers of the time. Imagine my embarrassment when asking Mr. and Mrs. Mike Wallace for the name in first class flying from New York to San Juan. I wasn't watching much TV at that time, was I? There were kind people and unfortunately very rude movie stars, too. One of the most polite was John Forsythe, who not only used my name, but was also charming during the flight. Most of the well-known personalities were very nice to us flight attendants, but I can think of one actress who was less than pleasant and is best forgotten. There were sick children to comfort, elderly ladies to help in wheelchairs, and Tiffany Pearls to search for on the floor of first class. 
There were two quick beverage and food services and the first class only flights from New York to St. Louis. These flights that had five cart China service up and down first class aisles and were a treat for the passengers as we arranged flowers, presented different choices of food and poured endless champagne. I remember a lady who, not having flown before, was convinced that we were not flying in the air at all. She just knew that this was as comfortable as her living room, and she was so surprised to see her destination a couple of hours later. That says a lot for smooth takeoff and landing. Favorite among my flights were the eight months in a row that I flew to Bermuda from JFK International Airport. Honeymooners with hands held across the aisle. Happy vacationing families looking forward to pink beaches. Businessmen intent on new horizons. All were treasured passengers. Having spent many days off in Bermuda, I enjoyed sharing my observations and recommendations. From time to time, I saw my travelers on other flights, and I would greet them by name, which would bring a nice smile of recommendation. It was another way to keep them returning to Eastern. One memorable flight from JFK to San Juan evidently broke some altitude and speed records. Although my vague memory does not allow the actual numbers, we as a crew were happy to have created the milestone. And of course, the cabin and cockpit crew were great co-workers. Our cooperation making the flights the best possible was always a meaningful part of my flying. I always felt the passengers knew when the crew was cohesive and could react in a positive way toward each other and them. Oh yes, the good old days when flying was so different. I worked hard, loving every minute of it, wearing my custom-made navy blue Don Loper suit and pillbox hat. Without a doubt, flying was my very favorite paid position. It was a pleasure to be part of a wonderful airline, now remembered so fondly by many personnel and passengers. This winter, you need all the summer you can get. With Eastern Airlines' new personalized vacation planning, you can have a vacation as unique as you are. Talk to your travel agent or call the airline that's working harder for your dollar. Get the most summer this winter from Eastern, the wings of man. Adventure in the Air by Donna DeMarco In the days before terrorism, security checks, taking your shoes off and firing up your laptop for the DSA, the airport was a place of excitement and entertainment. When I was five years old, my Aunt Marge and Uncle Bob took me out to the Philadelphia airport one Sunday afternoon to have lunch and to watch the airplanes take off. It was 1958, and we were hoping to get a look at a jet. I had seen lots of propeller airplanes before. A few times, low-flying prop airplanes made the wooden frame windows shake in our old Mayfair twin home, but jets, that was a bigger deal. I remember watching a jet taxi out and lumber down the runway as I was thinking there was no way that this giant with no propellers was going to be able to lift off. I remember seeing it lift skyward, leaving trails of black vapor, and I was hooked. 
That day I told my aunt and uncle that when I grew up, I was going to work for the airlines. Throughout grade school and high school, as my peers decided to, whether to be a nurse, a secretary, or a school teacher, which were the professions the guidance counselors were hard selling for schoolgirls, I remained true to my calling. I did in fact take a service representative position with a telephone company to bide my time until I was 19 and a half, old enough to apply to an airline. My very first flight was the one to Miami to begin training for Eastern Airlines. It was during the height of hurricane season, and I do not think we missed a single storm cloud the whole way there. My knees were still shaking when I deplaned and called home to say I'd arrived safely. Surely this turbulent flight was an aberration. Smooth blue skies were ahead for me. Two weeks into training school, after being plucked, buffed, quaffed, and having committed to memory 300 city codes, we were told we would all be going on a familiarization flight. We would take a return service for a day and assist the cabin crew. I picked a Philadelphia turnaround for my FAM flight. I reported at 0900 to Miami Operations and found my crew. I was wearing a pale pink long sleeve woolen dress, high heel pumps, and a big gold pin that read trainee. Once the DC-8 stretch was at cruising altitude, the senior flight attendant let me borrow a serving smock. She poured a tray of 12 soft drinks and placed them on a gray tray with a doily. Then she told me to hold the tray with both hands and offer the drinks to the passengers in coach cabin. I was just cutting through the first class cabin on my way to coach when we encountered some turbulence. Eleven of the twelve drinks poured into the lap of the man seated in the last row of first class, soaking him and extinguishing his cigarette in the process. The last drink perched on the edge of the tray and that one poured onto his head as I bent to begin cleaning up the mess. I was mortified, waiting for him to yell or something, but he erupted with a big bellowing laugh that served to make the rest of first class turn around to see what I had done. He was such a good sport and he made me feel at ease. Surely things had to go better after this. Not so. The turbulence continued and four separate times the captain asked the flight crew to suspend service and sit down. The senior flight attendant trusted me to do the roles in first class, stating that even if I dropped them, at least no one would get hurt. Later in the service, when the coach flight attendants began running the used flight food trays back to the galley, my job was to sit on a blanket on the floor and stuff the trays back into the carriers. The turbulence continued and I was holding on to the galley curtains with one hand as I stuffed the dirty trays with the others. I had crammed more than 50 trays into a carrier designed to hold 36 before the crate told me there were other empty tray carriers that could be used. The lasagna stains made a border on the part of my pink dress that hung below the smock and I still had to work the flight back to Miami with the same crew. The dinner flight back to Miami was a little less chaotic. The weather had improved and we had a headwind which gave us more time to complete a leisurely top-notch meal service. I may have spilled a few things on that flight as well, but at least it wasn't 12 sodas on the same guy. 
At the completion of the flight, the senior flight attendant gave me a sealed envelope to give to my training instructor back at training school. I was afraid she had documented my inability to walk and serve beverages at the same time. My, air career, my airline career was going to be over before it had even begun. <coughs> On the following Monday, in front of my entire training class, the instructor read a note from a senior flight attendant that commented, on a trainee so poised and confident that she could turn an embarrassing moment into a funny anecdote, and who had such a superb work ethic as to stick with the task, however messy, until the job was done. She further said it was a pleasure to fly with me. After that rocky start, I continued to fly for almost 20 years until my beloved Eastern Airlines closed its doors in 1991. The friendships I made at Eastern have survived, and those same folks are my friends today. What a wonderful, joyful career filled with adventure and camaraderie. Everything else, before and since, has been just a job. Eastern than any other airline in the free world. If you've helped make us America's favorite way to fly, we thank you. If you haven't flown Eastern recently, give us a try. We'll show you we really do earn our wings every day. Can you remember the last time you bought an airmail stamp to send a letter via airmail? It's probably been a while. I'm not sure that you even have that option anymore, especially domestically. Maybe worldwide you do. But of course with the advent of uh, email and uh, Federal Express and those type of things, uh, you really don't need to use airmail anymore. But we're going to learn a little bit about the early days of the airmail uh, personnel. This is from the book, From the Captain to the Colonel, by Rob Sterling. He tells about some early airmail pilots and about the dangers they faced, what kind of characters they were. So let's get into this, and we'll learn a little bit about these guys. And several of them ended up with Eastern Airlines after Pitt Carrion went out of business, then it became Eastern Transport, then it became Eastern Airlines. Like all their brethren of the 20s, Pickerian's first airmail pilots were characters. The first eight Jim Ray hired, and Jim Ray was the first test pilot hired by uh, Pitcairn, were veterans for their day, but the two most experienced had logged not more, much more than 25 hours of flying time. By modern airline standards, they'd be rated as greenhorns. It's only fair to remember that in 1927, any airman with 2,500 hours had to be not only good, but lucky. The majority of those hours had been spent in primitive, unreliable aircraft for operating in and out of inadequate fields and flying under conditions that made accidents probable, if not inevitable. 
There were no such safety devices as two-way radios, anti-icing systems, electronic navigation aids, nor even, with rare exceptions, paved runways. These facts of life, compared with the crystal ball aspects of 1927 weather forecasting, gave them a life expectancy somewhat below that of a lion tamer, steeplejack, and racing drivers. They not only weren't required to know instrument flying, which didn't become a federal regulation until 1932, most of them didn't even trust instruments. They were seat-of-the-pants pilots. The pressure on buttocks, the feeling in the stomach and bowels, the visual reference of horizons that could be as elusive as a mirage, and clouds that were beautiful enemies. All these were considered more reliable than crazily dancing dials and vibrating needles pointing to unreadable numbers. It was quite a collection Jim Ray enlisted for his Spitcarian squadron. Vern Treat of California, the only non-Southerner of this first group hired. John Keitel and Gene Brown from Atlanta. M. Bears Banks of Texas, Don Johnson of North Carolina, Sid Malloy from Mississippi. Treat, at 30, was the oldest and Keitel, at 24, the youngest. In personalities, backgrounds, and appearances, they were as individualistic as seven men from seven different planets, sharing only two things in common, love of flying and courage, both requisites for their dangerous profession. There was Johnny Keitel, whose forte was acrobatics. Army trained, like so many pilots of his time, he was good, perhaps too good, for his confidence in his ability to fly the flimsy airplanes of that era eventually was to lead to his death. Sid Malloy was another who loved acrobatics, but once he joined Pitcairn, he turned conservative and never rolled or looped a plane again. He looked more like a young banker than an airmail pilot, an ex-barnstormer. His clothes were impeccably tailored, and unlike the others, he wore his flying jacket or coveralls only when on duty. His colleagues appeared willing to sleep in them. Malloy's first name was Rutherford, which he disliked even more than Vern Treat did his middle name, Egbert. But Rutherford seemed to fit his personality. He had an air of dignity rather than dash, and even the Pullman-sized black-and-tan Chrysler Roadster he drove seemed to be an extension of the man himself. Curiously, big flashy cars were an airmail pilot's trademark. A psychiatrist could have had a field day figuring out why. Malloy's soft-spoken, almost diffident manner masked a sense of humor and an addiction to practical jokes, the latter a common denominator among the early pilots and typical of many of the later hip compatriots. Vern Treat was either Pitcairn's luckiest pilot or the unluckiest, depending on one's point of view. He was not only the oldest but the smallest and was hired largely because he had been an old flying buddy of Jim Ray's in their barnstorming days. He grounded himself after cracking up a plane that was working in a New Jersey garage when Ray found him and offered him a pilot's job. The diminutive Treat had more forced landings than the rest of the pet carrying crew combined. He survived one monumental night when he cracked up one plane and then had to parachute out of another after he ran out of gas trying to find a fog-shrouded airport. At the other end of Lady Luck Spectrum was big, handsome, embarrassed Banks, who resembled Jack Dempsey, seemed to court risk deliberately, and always got away with it. Banks always, was also Army trained, but the Army never taught him his instinct for sheer survival. To Banks, life was going against the odds. 
He defied the worst weather, ran every engine at full throttle as if daring it to falter, and rode planes down to blind landings when most pilots would have bailed out. The most serious mind of the original pilots was Gene Brown. He was neither prudish nor pompous, but to him flying was a profession and he regarded it through the eyes of a professional. When he was still in his early teens, he unloaded a Curtis Jenny out of a packing crate and assembled it. A native of Atlanta, he worked around Canada Field doing odd jobs without pay and occasionally would be given rides by sympathetic pilots. They'd let him put his hands and feet on controls, absorbing the techniques of flight as they maneuvered. It may seem unbelievable, but the first time Brown flew a plane himself, he took off and landed solo. At age 16, he was part owner of two Jennies, and he was as good a mechanic as he was a pilot. Brown, too, was Army taught and a former barnstormer. So was Don Johnston, a pale-faced youngster with hair so blonde it almost seemed white and gave him the appearance of an albino. When he first started flying the mail, he and Kyle were Pitcairn's wild men, but Johnston decided to reform and turn conservative, a decision promptly prompted largely by two near disasters, one of which involved the most hitting the Capitol Dome on a flight into Washington. Johnson used to boast that he would never die in an airplane, but his luck ran out during World War II. He was taken off from Miami in a military transport plane when an Army bomber, landing without clearance and no lights, collided with him head-on. The seventh and eighth pilots were taken on as reserve or relief men. The first was Ed Morrissey, a likable, slightly older man who had learned how to fly in the Army, and then did the usual barnstorming stance. The second, hired after Pitcairn began flying the mail, was to become an Eastern legend. If Eddie Rickenbacker symbolized the airline in general, Henry Tyndall Merrill was Mr. Eastern in the air. His father was a railroader, and Merrill became a railroad foreman before he became a pilot. If he had been a bit bigger and stronger, he might have made it as a baseball big leaguer. Merrill actually played minor league ball as an ambidextrous pitcher while hurling for a Canadian team. He pitched southpaw in a morning game and won it, and then threw right-handed in an afternoon game and won that one too. He earned the nickname Dick after the brother of Frank Merrill, the athletic superman of early juvenile fiction. Dick Merrill was known for throwing a baseball that rose a foot just as it approached the plate, but this jump ball was a prosaic feat compared with Brother Frank's double shoot, a pitch that curved twice in different directions. Not even Merrill could ever explain why he wasn't nicknamed Frank instead of Dick, but whatever the reason, it stuck. In later years, Merrill loved to tell the story of how Pitcairn hired him. He had been barnstorming before Jimmy Waddell offered him $65 a week to fly his new airmail route between New Orleans and Atlanta, one on which Pitcairn had bid unsuccessfully. Jim Ray was at Cumberland Carolinor Field one day in the spring of 1928 when the weather was of even the birds or walking variety. Ray had just finished commenting to a companion that an eagle couldn't find Candler in this slop. When a Waddell mail plane suddenly materialized out of the rain and fog like solidifying ectoplasm and made a perfect landing, Ray made a point of introducing himself to the pilot. That was one hell of a job flying, he added admiringly. Merrill shrugged. Thanks, he said with false modesty. Given the distinct impression, he considered such zero-zero approaches completely routine and rather dull. We could use you guys, you guys like you at Pitcairn, Ray suggested. 
What do you pay? The practical-minded Merrill inquired. Well, the base pay plus 10 cents a mile for night flying could add up to almost 300 bucks a week. Hell, that's a lot more than I'm making now. You got a deal. Thus did Dick Merrill and Buliet, absolutely fearless and enormously skilled pilot, come into the eastern story. In a sense, however, he entered under the false pretenses. Not for a long time was he to confess to Ray that his impressive landing at Candler was 99.9% pure luck. He was hopelessly lost and located the field only after he broke out of the overcast and found himself heading for a tall office building in downtown Atlanta. Fortunately, he recognized the street he knew led to Candler and he followed this to the airport. With five pilots and two reliefs lined up, Pitcairn was still not ready to roll on airmail Route 19. Even then, as it is today, the airborne operation of an airline were only the visible tip of the iceberg. What happens in the air is merely a culmination of what far more people have done on the ground to make each flight possible. Of Pitcairn's 41 employees assigned to the airline, only seven were pilots and the other 34 played vital, if not as in glamorous, roles. So that's the first part of some early employees of Eastern. We'll learn about another employee in the next session. After a long business trip, the last thing you need is a hassle at the airport. That's why Eastern has one-time check-in. It's like going from the curb directly to your plane. Because Eastern can give you boarding passes for your entire trip the first time you check in. One-time check-in. Eastern's way of wishing you many happy returns. We learned in an earlier session about some of Pitcairn Aviation's earliest air mile pilots. Now we're going to hear about a couple of men that were some of the earliest mechanics for Pitcairn and later on Eastern Airlines. To Sterling Smith of Brent Athan, Pennsylvania, with the honor of becoming Pitcairn's first employee, Harold Pitcairn had hired him as a mechanic in 1923 to assist Agnew Larson in Pitcairn Aviation's infant stage. When the airmail route opened, Smith was sent to Spartanburg as assistant station manager, and he was to stay with the airline until 1936. He was a sprightly 74 when Eastern celebrated its 50th anniversary in 1978 and lived in his own old hometown of Bren Athan. While Smith was Pitcairn's first paid employee, technically speaking, he had competition for the title. A feisty, cigar-smoking little man named Johnny Ray actually was the first one assigned to the airmail operation before Smith got into the act via his Spartanburg assignment. Ray hailed from Buffalo, New York, and got his first aviation job there with the Curtis Airplane and Motor Company. Curtis trained him as a mechanic specializing in engines, and he had few peers in that area. His reputation was such that Harold Pickerin heard about him and seduced him away from Curtis. Ray began working for Pitcairn June 21, 1925 at the Willow Grove Field. As the time neared for Pitcairn to submit his mail bid, he called Ray in to brief him on his air airline plans. We'll be using Richmond as our principal maintenance base, he informed the stop mechanic. It's just about at the halfway mark for the system, so you better go down there and set things up. 
His first shop was a room the size of a small kitchen, located in one corner of a dirt floor hangar. He could be found there almost any hour of the day or night, working with tools that included some he had, had to make himself. He did his first engine overhaul personally, partially because he didn't trust anyone else to do the job properly, and also because his handful of assistants could have recorded their collective knowledge of aircraft engines on a postcard. He literally was hiring mechanics off the street. One day he spotted a young man wandering around the runway area. Ray, as usual shorthanded, stopped him. You looking for somebody? Not somebody, something, a job. What do you do? Ray said. I'm a sewing machine mechanic. Well, Johnny growled, if you can fix a sewing machine, you must know how to use tools. You just got hired. Ray recalls that the boy stayed with him 18 years and finally quit only because he refused to join a union. It was strictly on-the-job tra training under Professor Ray, whose modus operandi was one-third improvisation, one-third ingenuity, and one-third pure guesswork. But the little man was good. To Johnny Ray, airplane engines were like living creatures to be cursed or coddled, disciplined or babied. The pilots were possessive about their airplanes, and the early pit carriners each had their own assigned PA-5. Ray was equally so about his beloved engines. He once warned the pilot, Take it easy with that engine. I just overhauled it. The pilot took off for a brief test top and roared at full throttle across the field over Ray's head. In total but understandable frustration, Johnny fired his only available anti-aircraft weapon, a big hammer which he threw in the general direction of a zooming plane. It missed the target by a, about a hundred feet, and what made it worse was that Ray was never able to find that hammer again. It was another early employee who gave Johnny Ray his most unusual chore in the nearly three decades he was to spend with Pitcairn slash Eastern. That was the ex-Navy Lieutenant Harold Elliott, who became Assistant Operation Manager under Jim Ray after his discharge. Elliot had won his naval wings despite the handicap of a wooden leg. Johnny saw him limping around the Richmond field one day and asked if the artificial leg was bothering him. Yeah, Johnny, Ellie admitted. The damn thing's killing me. I guess I need a new one fitted or something. Let me see it, Ray said. He inspected the limb briefly. If you can leave it with me, I'll see what I can do. The upshot was the first overhaul of a wooden leg by a master of the overhauling of aircraft engines. The special tools he handcrafted for the task. But that was Johnny Ray, who took special pride in the fact that no Pitcairn pilot ever lost his life in a crash blamed on engine failure. The pilots respected his single-minded devotion, and some of them were a little bit afraid of the peppery little guy, who didn't mind raising hell with anyone who mistreated one of his precious whirlwinds. That included the redoubtable Mr. Banks, the worst offender of them all, a common thread of motivation was woven through the minds and hearts of the Pitcairn pioneers. Love of aviation and faith in its future. Typical was the story of Howard Went, a Salisbury, North Carolina youngster who had the flying bug planted in his bloodstream by watching itinerant barnstormers come into a small town and offer rides for $5 a head. Went borrowed the money for his first flight and was hopelessly hooked. He was about to sign up for flying lessons at the Sweeney School of Aviation in Kansas City when he spotted a newspaper feature story about Pitcairn starting up a facility at the Tri-Cities Airport. 
the communal field serving Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point. Went through the new pit carrying manager at Tri-Cities, Henry Rafus, a veteran associate of, of Harold Pitcairn, inquiring about the cost of flying instruction. Rafus replied it would run $30 an hour or $275 for a 10-hour course, the money to be paid in advance. Went had to borrow half the amount from a friend and took the rest from his depleted savings. He was working as a street cleaner in Salisbury at the time, so he could take flying lessons only on weekends. During the town's business section early Saturday morning, then taking a bus to Greensboro for his lessons. He talked Rafus into letting him work at the field Saturday afternoon and all day Sunday, selling tickets for sightseeing rides and fueling the Pitcairn Aura Wing station there. This helped him pay back his loan and took care of a Saturday night hotel room at Greensboro, which cost him the then considerable sum of $1.50 a night. When Rafus was hospitalized from injuries received in an Aura Wing crack-up, none other than Sid Malloy ran the airport in his place. Went was startled to discover that Malloy was a barnstorming pilot who had given him his first ride, and Malloy eventually qualified him for his first solo. Went still wasn't experienced enough to rate a pilot's job, but Malloy liked him and finagled a job for him as a mechanic under Johnny Ray at Richmond. Went remembered years later that Ray's shop was clean enough to cook in. Johnny always wore a white shirt, working on those engines, and it stayed clean, he recalled. Went was to stay with the airlines 44 years, mostly as a dispatcher and occasionally as a reserve co-pilot in the days when flight crew requirements weren't as stringent as they were to become. His background and experience were rather typical of the average but caring employee, and a starting mechanic's salary of 86 a month for an 11-hour day, six days a week, explained why Pitcairn's monthly payroll when the airline was launched totaled less than $10,000. Fifty years later, it would amount to $63.3 million a month. Airmail Route 19 went into operation May 1, 1928, with a starting fleet of six airplanes. Four to fly the line, one earmarked for Jim Ray, and the six assigned to reserve, just in case the Lord fell of Johnny Ray. Theoretically, there were only seven pilots, but it was surprising how many management personnel could be called on for cockpit duty if the need arose. Virtually every man in this emergency pool was assigned to station manager's job. Rafus, for example, was a good pilot, and executives like Jim Ray and Harold Elliott could and did fly the mail on occasions. Memories of a great airline have reached the end of our broadcast tonight. We hope you enjoyed the stories as told by the Eastern family and read by Linda and Harry Lindquist and me, Neil Holland. The stories will continue with next week's broadcast of Memories of a Great Airline, Eastern, as told by its people. If you have memories you would like presented on the air, we hope you will send them to us so they can be read and heard by the Eastern family. You can even record them on your computer's voice recorder and send them to us, and we'll include them on a future show. Send via email to enealholland at yahoo.com. That's E-Neal, N-E-A-L, Holland, H-O-L-L-A-N-D, at yahoo.com. It must be in an MP3 or a WAV file to work. 
with our broadcast. These are the formats that most computers use. Also, we hope you will tell your friends about these broadcasts, and if you miss one, you can always go to blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, and select from the episode's archive. Our Eastern theme music tells us it's about time to say goodnight, Eastern family. From Linda, Harry, and me, we'll see you at the gate next week. Good night, Eastern family. <laughs>